Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 today. And what we're going to be asking uh, today uh, is, is really, what does it mean to live under the curse of the law versus being blessed by walking in righteousness that comes by faith in Christ? What does it mean to be cursed or blessed? And Paul is going to be continuing in his argument. Uh, as you know, he has written a letter to a group of churches in the region of Galatia that he planted. After he left that region, a group of false teachers infiltrated those communities, and they basically said, listen, the gospel that Paul preached to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that, that, felt, that salvation comes by faith in Christ alone through grace, that's not a complete gospel. That actually, the way to the transformation of the life is faith in Jesus and a commitment to Torah, Old Testament law. If you're not familiar with that word Torah, it's literally the Old Testament law. And Paul is going to continue to show us the contrast between what it would mean to go back to law, to live under the law versus living by faith in Christ alone, being transformed by the Holy Spirit and the freedom that comes through the Spirit's activity in us as we depend upon Jesus day by day. And Paul is deeply concerned with this, this church losing its way losing its place in Christ and falling into the trappings of law, which brings curse, rather than gospel, which brings freedom. And so I want to just begin by reading these verses, and we will jump right in. So it says, for all who rely on works of the law, I just want you to notice he's not, he doesn't have an issue with works. He has an issue with the works of Torah. And what I mean by that is that faith should always work that we need to have a faith that works, that dependence on Christ means also obedience to Christ, and that comes out of relationship with Christ. Uh, So he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And what was what was the blessing of Abraham? Is that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, that God made a covenant with Abraham, and that that covenant to Abraham was that through Abraham's seed, and Paul's going to get into that in more detail uh, in next week uh, as we consider the next section of chapter 3, is that through that seed, all nations would be blessed. And the way that the New Testament writers uh, interpreted the blessing is that the blessing is that faith in the work of Christ, actually brings Christ, the very person of Christ, by his Holy Spirit into the believer's life, that salvation 
is, is our justification and our sanctification, which brings about the transformation of the person into the likeness of Jesus. And so we're going to consider today of what it means to live under the curse of the law versus what it means to live by faith in Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. I want to just begin with this quote from one of my favorite poets, this French poet named Rimbaud, wrote a small book of poetry called Illuminations. Rimbaud, as far as I could tell, is not a Christian, but he made this interesting statement that I think points really powerfully to the gospel. In, in one of his poems, he said, I dream of a war of righteousness whose logic will be quite unexpected. And what I want you to see today is that the logic of the gospel, the righteousness that comes by faith, is so absolutely counterintuitive to the human experience that we have to constantly be reminded of the fact that it does not fit human logic, that the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of man, and that the wisdom of the human heart, which is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted, is the natural default setting, even for us as believers, the temptation to go back again and again to creating law for ourselves rather than trusting implicitly in the finished work of Jesus. Uh, it's so problematic uh, that, that here we even find Paul having to write a letter to a whole group of churches that are coming under the influence of, of this idea that faith in Jesus is not enough. You gotta keep the Torah. So we need to remember that Torah, as a holistic system of conduct with its ethical, ritual, and boundary-maintaining re regulations, one of Paul's primary arguments throughout the book of Galatians is that the Torah, the law, was a temporary measure in God's economy that its authority was instituted for a particular people, the Jewish people, 430 years after Abraham, and it served a positive function for a prescribed time. And what was that prescribed time? Well, listen to what it says in, in Galatians 3.24. We'll look at this verse next week. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Jesus ushers in a new age. The old has passed away. The new has come in. I, I had a young woman come up to me after, the serve, after last service, and she said, it would be helpful if you would connect the dots for me between this statement and Matthew 5. Jesus' own words. The Son of Man did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them is to actually usher in a new age. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. What we need to remember is that Hebrews itself said that all of the, all of the law, the Old Testament, it's all pointing. It's, the, the shat, there, it's shadows, and the substance is all wrapped up in Jesus, that he is its fulfillment, that our trust in him. And remember, what, what Paul goes on to say is, what was the purpose of law? Really, the law, I, I always say it can kind of be unfolded in three ways, like, unpacks like a telescope. It begins with this initial, this initial command, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then it's unfolded into the Ten Commandments. And then the Ten Commandments become explained and amplified, and that amplification keeps coming out. But through Jesus, it comes back to being fulfilled by one word and one word alone. And what is that word? All the law is fulfilled in what? 
in love. Love. <laughs> yes, faith in Christ brings the Spirit of God, which pours the love of God out in our hearts. And that love of God in our hearts actually creates a love for others. But all of this, the danger, what I want you to see and what Paul is concerned about is that often, exactly as the Jewish people did, is that God never intended the law to be the producer of righteousness. That faith in God is accounted to the people as righteousness and that the law was given as the parameters by which to live the righteous life. So it's like a family. We don't, what makes my family, my family is not the rules that I place around the family, but the rules are there so that we can live out life together communally as a family. And I think what the children of Israel did is the same thing that we continue to do today, which is that we lose the relationship at the center and then we spin our wheels on the perimeters. And this is deeply problematic. The goal of the law has been reached in the coming of Christ. What Paul wants the Galatians to remember is that there was nothing that made them worthy of the gift that came to them in Jesus. You can't, if I keep the law, God will be okay with me. Isn't that what all religion says? Live like this and God will accept you. But the gospel, it's so counterintuitive. It comes to us as a different kind of logic from a different place. The war of righteousness, as Rimbaud calls it, comes to us this way. God has already accepted you in Jesus Christ. Now live like this because of his great love for you. Live out of that love. And the moment you lose the relationship is the moment you come dangerously close to coming back under curse. Why would we want to live under the curse when we've been set free to live out the law of love? For love is the fulfillment of the law. And so all they did was receive the message in faith that is in the declaration of bankruptcy that recognizes in Christ's unconditioned love the sole source of their worth. And it plays out the same in our lives today. In our bankruptcy, we recognize that it is God's unconditioned love for us that is the source of our worth. And I want to just remind you of this powerful statement that Jesus said because it is so tempting to live according to, it doesn't matter if it's the, if it's the law of Torah or it's the law of our own making, the natural temptation for us is to believe that there must be something that I can bring to the table that will better my position before God. And that always leads to frustration. Let me remind you of Jesus' own words to his disciples. He says, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Okay, let's play out the logic of that statement. It's pretty, it's pretty disruptive. That means that everything we do without him is what? Nothing. Now, that's a fascinating statement that I just made because there's lots of people that do not have Jesus that do all kinds of amazing things, all sorts of things that are good for society, good for humanity. But what is Jesus stating? He's saying, there is nothing that you can do of any eternal value apart from right relationship with me, abiding in me. Everything that Jesus commands is connected to a restoration of relationship. That's what the gospel's about. So I want to answer three questions today. What are you relying on? Are you following Jesus or following rules? And finally, are you free? 
good questions. I think these are good questions that we should ask ourselves as Christians. And this will really bring us to that bigger picture. Are we living under curse or are we living under blessing? Are we engaged in the war of righteousness? So beginning on, with this question, what are we relying on? We look at first at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's a fascinating statement. Everyone who relies on the Torah, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then look what he does. Paul's using just incredible rhetoric here. For it is written, drawing from Deuteronomy 27, 26, which was probably a verse that his critics were using to encourage Torah keeping. He turns that verse upside down on its head and he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the books of the law and do them. So he begins by his little synopsis. Anyone who relies on the works of the law are under a curse because the scripture itself says that in order to enter into Torah, you have to keep the whole thing. And we know that none of us can actually do that. I mean, what does Paul say in Romans uh, chapter three, he says, there is none who are righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What does he say in Romans chapter seven? He says, even of himself, he says, listen, the things that I want to do, uh, I, I can't seem to do. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? O wretched man that I am. And then he says, oh, it comes, praise be to God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ, not through our failed attempts at keeping Torah. He says, so fine, you want to rely on the works of the law, you need to understand that you are placing yourself directly under curse because you can't keep it. And Paul is constantly addressing the tendency to put self in the place of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And Jesus, without me, you can do nothing. So why would we, why would we put our faith in Christ and then return to law? So here's the, here's the question. What is, what is Paul really pushing at? Because I think Mark did a great job of addressing this, and, and we need to be reminded of the verse that you considered last week, which is in Galatians 3.3. 3, what has begun in the Spirit are you now trying to perfect in the flesh? Now, here's what's fascinating. When he says that, he connects perfecting, working in the flesh, which means working in sin, is the same as keeping Torah. Are you trying to perfect what God has begun in the spirit by going back to Torah? And he calls it, he says, are you trying to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit? He said, he, he, if you read through Romans, you see clearly that, that we, we can't live according to the flesh. We have to live according to the spirit. That through the flesh, through sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift that comes to us through Jesus is life. And so here we see the signs. I want, I want you to see this because this is the question. What are you relying on? Uh, and and you, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not practicing Torah. And some of you may be practicing Torah. But what I want to ask is the question of, of what are we relying on? And, and, then, and then deepen that question of how do I even know if... I am living under a curse rather than a blessing. How do I know what I'm relying on? And so I want to just give you, I think really practically, some signs that we are living under a curse rather than 
the blessing that comes through faith in Christ. Uh, the, the signs that we are living by the flesh rather than by the spirit. And I think this is really helpful. Uh, and, I'm gonna, and, and this really goes in stages. I'm gonna cover what I consider to be the spectrum. On one side, extreme legalism. On the other side, the libertine spirit. I'll do whatever I want and it's all okay. Because both sides are actually living under the curse. One, one may be... One may be uh, performance-driven in such a way that they think they're good with God because of what they're doing. The other may are still living under curse, and they're so frustrated with their inability to live out that thing that they just stop caring. But there, here's the first one. You feel good and confident in your performance as a Christian more than you do in Jesus. I, I want to just restate that because that's super important. This is a sign that you are living under curse rather than blessing, is that you are more confident in your performance than you are in Jesus himself. And what I mean by that is that at the lack of relationship you have with Jesus, you have replaced relationship with what I like to call selective sanctification, because you're never going to be wholly sanctified. So what we do is we create a list of things that we don't do that make us feel like we're being good Christians. And fill in the list. I read my Bible every day. I serve at the Portland Rescue Mission once a month. I go to church. Let's just, let's just name the, the door. I go to church at least more than everyone else twice a month. <laughs> I'm involved in a community group. We start, we start checking off the boxes of the things that we consider to be right living, and we're so excited about that that we don't even stop to think about the fact that if we were really asked the question, if you were to meet Jesus on the street, would you know him? Or would he be a stranger to you? And you think, oh, Josh, that's so abstract. It's really not that abstract. <laughs> it's actually pretty direct. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing, the, the challenge is that if it's hard to get to know people that we can see, it's really hard to get to know a God that we can't see. But God has given us all the necessary means to know him. He places his spirit within us. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, they follow me. He says, abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Everything that has eternal value has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit God, that comes out of relationship with the living Christ. What Paul is protecting the church from is falling into the trappings of, of replacing relationship with law, with, with moral practices that make them feel like they're doing a good job before God. But let me just remind you of the most terrifying words in all of Scripture, especially as a preacher. Because it is very easy when you are in full-time ministry to feel like you have marked off all your boxes of what it means to be a Christian, when in actuality, uh, more pastors than not enter into deep stages of total emotional bankruptcy because their intimacy with Jesus is completely eradicated by their service of the church, service to the church. Their identity is more wrapped up in who they are as pastors than who they are in Christ. I have gone through those stages and the words that always haunt me and bring me back to my knees in total dependence upon Christ is Jesus' own words in Matthew 7 when he says, and many will come to me in the last days and they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many signs and wonders in your name? Did we not do all these things in your name? Which 
declares the fact that they knew his name means that they thought they knew him. The fact that they were doing these things, he never denies that they did them. That's also a very terrifying reality. What he says is, away from me, I never knew you. We weren't in relationship. You did all kinds of things that made you feel good and confident in your performance, but the whole time, relationship with me was absolutely null and void. If that makes you uncomfortable, I think Jesus said those words to make us uncomfortable, to constantly force us to ask the question is, do I know the Jesus that I talk about? Do I know the Jesus of the scriptures? When I come to church, am I coming to meet the living Christ or am I coming to mark off a box to make me feel better? As a way of getting out of hell and getting into heaven. No, that's, that's, that's living under curse. And there is no blessing in that. And it will ultimately show itself. And where it will show itself is in kind of that spiritual bankruptcy that leads us really, I think, a second stage, another sign that you're living under curse rather than blessing, because not everyone is, is, uh, is an overachiever and, and high performance driven. I think another sign that you're living under a curse rather than blessing is that you feel frozen and overwhelmed by your inability to live like you think a Christian should. I meet so many Christians that just struggle with this. They just feel like constant spiritual failures. I'm not, I, I, I want to read my Bible, but I don't. I want to do this or that, and I don't do it. I, and there's all these, these issues and these stresses, and, and it freezes us, and it overwhelms us. And, and I know I've fallen into this trapping as well. And what that shows is that I'm not living out of the abundance of grace that is given to me through knowing Christ, but I'm living according to a set of rules that I think will make God happy if I was able to keep them. Or third, what about this? You feel despair and anger over the Christian life. I've met plenty of Christians like that, just over it. <laughs> I can't do it. It's, it's, the Christian life is too hard. If you are still living under the false assumption that it ever was doable in your own strength, that shows that you're living under curse and not under blessing. Because to live under blessing is to be daily confronted with our absolute inability to live out the Christian life apart from Christ in me. This is why Paul says, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus. The final stage, I think, that's a sign that you're under curse rather than blessing is you feel indifferent toward Jesus. It's what... Dorothy Sayers in her book, Creed or Chaos, essay that she wrote on the seven deadly sins, says is the worst sin of all sins, and it's the sin of apathy. It's the sin of I don't even care. <laughs> I'm completely indifferent toward Jesus, his ways, and his people, even though I still might call myself a Christian. I still might show up at church, but as far as feeling guilty about whatever, whatever I'm giving myself to, um, I, don't, I don't feel guilt. I don't feel shame. I really don't feel anything. And that's a huge component of actually modern existence right now is there is an ever-increasing apathy over life because it's hard to live well. Life is hard. Existence is hard. But the gospel is so easy that we constantly miss it because we, ought, we cannot accept the idea that we just have to receive it. Now, reception doesn't mean let go and let God. Reception means let go of the lie of who God never intended you to be so that you can come alive and who God wants you to be. 
reception of the gospel means let go of everything else and cling to God with everything that is in you. Don't let go of the relationship. All relationships take effort. But salvation comes to us as a gift, and the gift comes, but we have to continually build into the relationship. Remember what I said? The gospel sets us free, but freedom creates responsibility. My wife is not my slave. She is free <laughs> uh, to be my wife, and, and I am free to be her husband, but there is a tremendous amount of responsibility if that relationship is going to maintain healthy intimacy at 21 years. And, and I mean, with Darcy, it's super easy because she's gorgeous and, and is my bohemian Indian queen. But for, for her, it's so hard. I just do not envy her having to continually put up with me. Uh, the freedom uh, is the responsibility to give ourselves completely to that relationship, to continue to trust one another and to grow in intimacy together. And you can see this all the time, relationships that turn to law rather than relationship. The heart is wicked above all things and not to be trusted. Don't rely on a wicked heart. And here's the thing is that, yes, God gives us a new heart. We die to the lie and we come alive uh, into the newness of a new creation. But there is this incredible ability that we have as human beings, even regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to resurrect the old man and the old woman. Let us not leave the intimacy of relationship for the parameters of empty form. That's not what we need. Okay, so there's that first question. What are you relying on? Are you relying on Jesus? Or are you relying on what you do for Jesus? Or frozen by what you think you should be doing for Jesus? Or angry and despairing at what you can't seem to do for Jesus? Or indifferent because you realize you can't do it and you've given up? That's all under curse. Blessing is daily, daily dependence upon the living Christ to empower you by his spirit to live out the life of faith. Which then brings us to the second question. Are you following Jesus or following rules? Look what he says in Galatians 3, verses 11 through 12. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What, what's Paul's argument here? Once again, he is using two Old Testament passages and he is putting them side by side. One is Habakkuk 2.4 and the other is Leviticus 18.5 and he is showing us something really profound here. He says in Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So even the prophets recognized that Abraham is the prototype of how relationship with God always works. It is through total dependence upon him. That sin, in its essence, is our rebellion against God's rule over our lives, and that, and that salvation comes by allowing God the right to be himself in and through our lives, to give him permission to guide and to lead. Jesus said, follow me, he never said where he was going. And this is why it's hard and why we often choose to follow rules rather than follow Jesus. Because at least following rules, I know what I'm getting into and I'm still in control. Following Jesus is way scarier, way more dangerous, way more risky. I know this firsthand because when I became a believer the first year, I was still trying to control the relationship between me and Christ. I was, Jesus, I know you say follow me, 
And you know, everyone keeps telling me you have a perfect plan for me. I'm not sure if it's a perfect plan for me. It seems to maybe just be a perfect plan, but no guarantee for me at all. Therefore, I would like to maybe co-plan with you. Because, I mean, I'm, people tell me I have great ideas. And uh, as a musician, I feel like now that I've put my faith in you, if we could work together, that dream of world domination when I was 22 could really become a reality where I will give you full credit if you, and then you fill in the blank, if you do this, bless me, I will follow you. So that, 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 this is the whole thing about following Jesus or following rules. I, I, I want, we often don't want to follow Jesus because following Jesus is risk. It's stepping into the dark onto a rock. It's, it's not knowing where we're going. Jesus, would any of the disciples even followed him had they known where he was going? If he said, hey, Peter, follow me. Someday you're going to be crucified upside down. It's going to be awesome. Come on, man. No, no. He pulled a fast one on them. Didn't tell them. Because uh, what's important is not where we're going, it's who we're following. And, and so here, these two verses, Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In Leviticus 18.5, if a person does them, that is the law, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. What Paul is saying here is he says, no one is found righteous in the sight of God within the terms of Torah. You're not righteous because you keep the law. Righteousness is promised on the basis of faith. That's Paul's argument. And the Torah concerns not faith, but the practice of its own commands. In other words, uh, this, is the que- this is the question that was asked when, after Todd gave his sermon on, on the gospel being a fulfillment of Abrahamic righteousness, that, that, faith, uh, that righteousness comes the same way uh, by that we believe God and it's accounted to us as righteousness. We put our faith in Christ and it's accounted to us as righteousness. But the question is, is what about the practice? Why, why, why would circumcision not continue to be important uh, if that was the covenantal, if that was the sign of the covenant of faith? And that's because, as I just shared in the beginning, that the Torah was a guide, a guide for a time until it found its fulfillment in Jesus. Now trusting in Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit is the means to the transformation of the person. And so faith has all, or righteousness has always come by faith. It's never come by the keeping of law. And so he's putting these, these two things. He says, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Your whole life is gonna be controlled by your attempts to keep something that you can't keep. Why is it so easy to live on the parameters and lose the relationship then? And I think it always comes back to that whole question of following Jesus versus following our own desires. And the reason that we create laws for ourselves often is to make ourselves feel better about our maintaining autonomy. I, if I do a certain amount of Christian activities and do these things, then I don't have to feel bad about the fact that I'm actually not allowing Christ to dictate his own terms over my existence. And this is what we call carnality. Now, we often think of the carnal Christian as the one that enters into all sorts of unseemly activities. But this is what it means to be a carnal Christian. The carnal Christian means that you have been redeemed by faith in Christ through his reconciling death, You've received the gift of the Holy Spirit by whose gracious presence Christ lives within you, but you live in spite of this 
In self-imposed poverty under the subtle influences of a defeated foe, the flesh, which Christ took with him into the grave. Directly from Major Ian Thomas's book, The Saving Life of Christ. The carnal Christian is one who continually resurrects the flesh and then lives according to the flesh, tries to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. And we all have our moments where this is a reality for us. This is why we need to live in the context of community, why we need one another to continually point one another back to a living, vital relationship with the living Christ. Are you following Jesus or are you following rules? It doesn't matter if it's Torah or the rules of your own making. If, it's not, if your faith is not flowing out of your relationship with Christ, but it's your faith in your own performance, there's something problematic about your Christianity. Which brings me to the final question is, are you free? In Galatians 3, verses 13 through 14, in closing, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Once again, Paul utilizing the Old Testament, utilizing directly from the law, from the Torah, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23, showing that Jesus redeemed us, that is, he purchased us at a price. It was costly to bring about our salvation. It may be free for us, but it cost God his son. And the the power of this statement redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he uses this, this verse in Deuteronomy, which talks about criminals being hung on a tree, that they're not to be left on the tree um, and, and defile the land. And yet Jesus being hung on a tree, the one who actually lived out the law, the one that said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And the fulfillment of the law by Jesus was marked by what? It was the outflow, his obedience to the law flowed out of his relationship with his father. I only do those things which please the father. Jesus shows us what the spirit-filled, empowered life looks like. He fulfills the law by the single word of love. He loves the father and he loves the world. And his total identification with the father and his absolute and total identification with us, not just simply in our humanity, but with our sin means that Jesus, the righteous, actually became a curse so that we could be freed from that curse. It, it, it directly corresponds to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when it says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the power of the gospel. It's the upside down kingdom. Jesus becoming a curse for us means that he innocently took into himself the sin of Adam and all of us. He took it into himself. The one who was without sin, freely he entered into solidarity with us in our brokenness. He became a curse so that we could be freed from the curse. Not only is he the fulfillment of the law, but he takes the judgment of the curse into himself. Basically what he does on the cross It's the great exchange. Jesus, the life that he lived, that perfect life that he lived, qualified him for the death that he died. And that death that he died was dying under the judgment that we deserve. He made it his own. The death that he died qualifies us today for the life that he lived. And Paul says, why would you go back to Torah? 
Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Torah, not only did he fulfill the law, but he also dealt with its curse and has set us free from it. Not free to do what we want, but free to live out the spirit-filled life, transformation into Christ's likeness, the love of God being poured out in our hearts, which enables us to live out what fulfills the law in a single word, which is love. Here we have the miraculous creation of blessing out of a curse by the counterintuitive reality of Christ becoming accursed. And notice what it says. So that in Christ Jesus, there's that most important preposition, the placement, the safest place to be is to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. This is why Jesus, it's fascinating, it's all Christ, but he commands us to abide in him. The word, we, don't, we don't escape being obedient, it's just that our obedience flows out of our yieldedness to the Spirit empowering us and pushing us into the world that we might become conduits of God's great rescue plan for humanity. And the blessing of Abraham, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, here, uh, this is so powerful, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is to the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And here we see that the way that the New Testament writers interpret what the blessing of Abraham is, is the reception of the Holy Spirit. It's the content of the blessing. In other words, we become children of promise by the transformation of the Spirit, not by keeping the law, but by being in Christ and Christ being in us. I just want to restate that again and again. So why, in closing, do we keep rebuilding walls? Galatians 2.18, Paul himself said this to the church. He said, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Why would I put up put up walls that have been torn down by Jesus. For what did Paul write in Ephesians chapter two? That Jesus, Jesus himself, he doesn't bring peace. He is our peace. And he is our peace. How is he our peace? Because he has torn down the middle wall of hostility. He has restored right relationship with the Father. He stood in the gap that he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And when we see Jesus on the cross, we see the Father's love for a lost world, for us. And he tore down the middle wall of separation so that we could enter boldly into the throne room of grace. And what's fascinating about the passage in Ephesians chapter two, verses 13 through 18, when he talks about him tearing down that middle wall, that dividing wall of hostility, how did he do it? Paul actually writes these words, by abolishing the law. Have you guys ever picked up on that? So it's pretty important for him, for these churches to understand that going back to Torah isn't just simply counterintuitive. It actually is, it is actually dragging the name of Christ through the mud. It's basically walking over the atoning work of the cross. Why would you go back to the thing that you couldn't keep? God has created a way for us. We are children of a new covenant. The old has passed away. The new has come in. Now the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed has come. And it's not come, it does not come through Torah. It comes through the Holy Spirit. But here is why we continue to rebuild walls because wide open spaces are scary for people who like to trust in walls. I, if I could borrow from David De Silva, and what he means by that is that we are more comfortable with following rules than we are with following Jesus. Jesus. 
because it keeps us in control. I want to just remind you of the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel is not God's ability to just simply save us from hell and get us into heaven. But our faith in Christ should allow Christ the right to be Christ in and through our lives. He is himself the very dynamic of all his demands. Christ did not simply die that you might be saved from a bad conscience or even to remove the stain of past failure, but literally to clear the decks for divine action. He reconciles you to God by his death, but he saves you by his life. He says, I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. And so I just ask today, are you functioning under the curse? Living out the Christian life without relationship with Jesus? That's miserable. It's the worst way to live. You're better off being a complete pagan not knowing anything about Jesus than living the Christian life without Christ. I can't think of anything harder honestly, or more miserable. But I can't think of anything more freeing or powerful than knowing the living Jesus, than trusting him. I can think of nothing more exciting and more dangerous, but always rewarding than walking by faith, following him wherever he leads you, not even knowing where he's going, but just knowing it doesn't even matter as long as he's the one in front of me. It's like George MacDonald wrote in his famous fairy tale, The Golden Key. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave and raised a huge stone from it and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. And Tangle, the young child that the old man of the earth is talking to, says, but there are no stairs. And the old man of the earth replied, you must throw yourself in. There is no other way. People often ask, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? How can I answer anything but everything? Jesus must be your all in all or he'll be nothing at all. He wants to be real in your life. Are you trusting in him? Or are you trusting in the works that you think you're doing for him to make yourself feel better? Do you know him or do you know about him? Jesus said, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, and they hear my voice, and they follow me. Follow him. Don't follow the rules of your own making. Walk by faith, and you will have a faith that works. Amen?